Good morning, Gateway. We're coming to the end of a series of messages. We've spent the summer working our way through the book of Acts. And we've done so by taking large chunks of Scripture each week and trying to find themes that God wanted to unpack for our lives. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to let the story speak for itself this week and next week. I'm I'm actually going to read a large chunk of the end of Acts and encourage you to spend some time this week knocking it out yourself. The last several chapters in Acts are an incredible story, really made for Hollywood. So let me set this up by saying last week, if you were here, you'll remember that on Friday, God changed my message. I came in intending to preach about the Apostle Paul's faith and the incredible spiritual awesomeness of the Apostle Paul. And we really hadn't looked at that as carefully and as clearly as I thought we should through the series of Acts. And then I realized as I was looking through the passage from last week, that section of Acts wasn't about how incredible the Apostle Paul was. In fact, the book of Acts is not really how incredible the Apostle Paul is or Peter or the early church. It's not Paul's story. I said last week it's God's story. And we talked about how really we don't need to celebrate the incredible Apostle Paul with his awesome faith, but we need to celebrate Paul who had faith and incredible and awesome God. And then we ended last week by saying, you know, there are a couple of things that we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Because as I was originally thinking about that message about, you know, the incredible awesomeness of Paul and his faith and just his overall spiritual amazingness, I realized that I was going to end a message like that by challenging us. In effect, saying to us, you know, we need to do more and we need to do better. And by the time I got to the end of the message, I realized that wasn't the message at all. Really, the message was almost we need to do less. In fact, I realized if we learned anything from the Apostle Paul, it was three themes, really. Number one, surrender. I surrender all. That's why Jordan led us in that song this morning. It's about our surrender. Secondly, we learned that the Apostle Paul had amazing spiritual grit. He just hung on. When times were good, he hung on. And when times got tough, he hung on harder. And finally, we learned that Paul had... Uh, clear and consistent eternal perspective. He was always focused on the main thing. For Paul, the main thing was always the main thing. And the main thing is our life in him and what he has for us and where he's taking us and who he's making us to be. Okay, so pause for a second. A little parenthesis to set up what we're talking about today. I know that you're here this morning because most of you, at least many of you, you really have a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you have been at various stages in your walk with him, closer or nearer in your relationship with him, but you have a relationship with him that is rich and real. If that's true of you, then you have at some point in your life, and for for many of you at many points in your lives, you have felt drawn into something epic. You have felt something or someone grander than yourself. You felt alive to yourself precisely because you have known in your bones that it wasn't about you. 
But you've also experienced, I know this because you're like me, you live in the suburbs of 21st century America. You have felt the friction wearing that down. The friction of you know, troubles in your daily life. The friction of the, the call to comfort. The call to something easy and pleasant. And so you and I live, as much as anyone in human history, I want to suggest, I know that's egocentric, but as much as anyone in human history, we live in that tension of feeling called into something great or something ah, epic, something God-sized, and then we feel the friction of everyday life bearing down, weighing down, rubbing us down, normalizing us. And today we're going to use this kind of imagery, domesticating us, taming us. As we work through the story this morning, there's one overarching, critically important idea I want you to keep in mind. I want you to hear it in the story as we're reading the large section of this story today. It's really the only point. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. I want you to hear that the tension, that friction. I want you to hear it come from an unbelievably good source. I want you to listen for how the Apostle Paul responds to that friction. How he keeps himself untamed. I'm convinced it's an idea. This idea is an idea that helps explain Paul. It helps explain his life, his impact. It helps explain his surrender, his spiritual grit, and his eternal perspective. Here's the idea. Paul was undomesticated. He was spiritually untamed. In the words of Erwin McManus, he was a spiritual barbarian. He had an encounter with God that changed everything about who he was and how he viewed his own life. This encounter lit a flame in his heart and filled him with a great purpose and a holy passion. Certainly there were forces that acted on that purpose and passion like sandpaper on wood. Certainly there were forces that threatened to wear him down, to normalize him, to tame him, to domesticate him. But Paul never traded that great purpose for a lesser purpose. Paul never traded his holy passion for the baser passions like pleasure or comfort. Paul was a spiritual barbarian. So this morning I want you to listen for a couple of key moments and key decisions that demonstrate that for us. And let's kick this off with a word of prayer. Often when we gather, I have us stand out of reverence for God's Word. But today I'm going to be reading two chapters from Acts, so you'll be standing the whole time. So instead of doing that, let's stand out of reverence for God Himself, and let's stand to pray. Father, a small corner of your people are gathered here this morning. We've gathered for a variety of reasons and motivations and from various places, our heart is open or not open to varying degrees, but you're here. We ask that you would speak to us. Specifically, God, I pray for a reminder. I don't know, the, the howl of a wolf or the, the call into the wildness of adventure with you and building your kingdom and doing something grand for you. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that difficulty and shattered dreams and also the lure of material goods and comfort 
and pleasure have worn us down and smoothed us out. And at times and in places left us with less than the life that you called us to. Less than abundance. Less than the thrill of joining you in your great work. But I'm so thankful for those that have come alongside Diane and I here to join us in that part of your work here. I'm honored, God, and I pray that you would, in this next stage of our lives together, Lord, as we construct a facility, I pray that you would not let us get domesticated, proud of our little building, proud of having new people come visit us. God, I pray that you would keep your voice alive and rich in our lives and our hearts, that you would continue to call us into deep waters, call us into yourself. Lord, this morning we want to hear the echo of those times when we've clearly felt and heard it's about something much bigger than ourselves. We're still, God, we give you permission to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to continue to do some setup of this story as we're going through the early parts of it, but as we get toward the end of this story, we're just going to let the story speak for itself. I want you to hear and see and watch the barbarian Paul as the last chapter, really, of his life unfolds. Jonathan, I've got a map that I want to flash up here for us. You'll remember if you've been here or if you're familiar with Acts, you may know that during this period of Paul's life when he's just full-time sharing the great story of Jesus and what happened to him, all, really all over Asia Minor and Europe, he takes, in effect, three different journeys. And we are now, at this point in the story, we're coming to the end of the third journey. So the last place he goes to and spends a considerable period of time is sort of left center of your screen. I don't know if you can see it, but it's Ephesus. And it's one of the most important cities we said that the Apostle Paul went to. And he spent three years there. On his second trip, he just stopped by Ephesus. It was a quick jump start to the group of believers that were gathered there. And then he went back for three years. And at the end of that period, he feels compelled to make his way back to Jerusalem. So that's where we are in the story now. Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. And in the very early part of the story, we're going to hear the, the kind of trip itinerary because Luke is careful to include that, the itinerary of the trip itself. But we're also going to hear our first hint at just one of those really well-meaning voices that tend to tame us, to domesticate us. And the Apostle Paul certainly had those in his life. So let's look at Chapter 21 of Acts. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up. Or if it's on your phone, dial into that, Acts 21. And we're going to be going through all of chapter 21 and chapter 22. And really the first part of chapter 23. We'll end in the middle of the story. Next week we'll pick this up again. And I'll be a little more practical next week. Today we're, I've prayed that this would be inspirational for us. Next week we're going to 
Take a look at what this looks like, the how and the why of it. But chapter 21, and let's look real quick at verses 1 through 4. Let me make some comments, and then we'll dive into more of the story. So chapter 21, Acts. After we had torn ourselves away from them, these are the people in Ephesus, and it was a very emotional departure. We put ourselves out to sea and sailed straight to coast. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo, binding the disciples there. So the Apostle Paul gets off the ship and begins to wander the city and ask about the followers of the way. And he identifies where the disciples are. And Luke continues and says, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So it's an important note that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem because he felt compelled by the Spirit to go. I'm looking back at chapter 20, and if you don't have a Bible, if, you've got, if you're using a phone, that's okay. I won't have it on the screen. But at the end of chapter 20, essentially what Luke does is he just records a long farewell address from Paul to the, to the Christ followers in Ephesus. He says to, this to them in verse 22, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Not only so, but it's pretty clear in the way he says that, that he has an idea that it may not go supremely well for him there. And then he gets this prophetic word, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, because if you go to Jerusalem, there will be trouble for you. There will be persecution. Well, first of all, if this is confusing for any of you, I want you to know that this kind of thing absolutely does happen. We, throughout the course of our Christian lives, we get impressions, ideas, thoughts, messages from God for ourselves and for others. Sometimes they're very clear and they're very direct. This has happened here at Gateway. Secondly, I want you to know that God is not confused, nor does he contradict himself. So God is not changing his mind here about the Apostle Paul going to Jerusalem. What's probably happened is that these Christians have a strong, clear sense that persecution awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And they love him so much, and they don't want him to be persecuted, obviously. Probably their love for Paul has caused them to mix sentimentality with strong advice from God. And this is one of the ways in which well-meaningness can wear us down and tame us. As parents, we can do that to our children. We can domesticate them through sentimentality and not through spiritual direction and guidance. So if you or I got this message, what would we do? Well, if we were domesticated suburbanite Christians, we absolutely would not go to Jerusalem. We would assume that God wants us to be comfortable and safe. Of course he does, we assure ourselves. That's got to be his supreme value because it's ours. Because you and I are constantly in danger of having traded in the great call of adventure, life change, and purpose for good schools for the kids, a high-end late model car, and a nice yard. Verse, chapter 21, verses 5 through 14. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. And what a, 
magnificent scene that must have been. He's been with these disciples for a week. Now, in fairness to the story, they, not all of us have this kind of impact when we meet someone in one week. They've heard of the Apostle Paul. They've anticipated him. But you've been in these kind of settings before where you were with a group of Christians for a week. And at the end of that week, it was hugging and saying goodbye. and Don't go. It's a tearful departure. This is the kind of departure. They're out on the beach. They're about ready to set sail. Paul, we love you. Thanks. We've been praying for you. We heard about you. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But he gets on the ship. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. So we've heard about Philip in chapter 6. There was a point at which the movement had grown so dramatically, they needed a layer of leadership and organization, service and administration underneath the apostles. So they identified the, the seven people that they felt were the most full of the Spirit and the most ready to go spiritually. And they nominated those folks as deacons to kind of care for all kinds of things and and the administration of the church. And Philip was one of those guys. Then later in chapter 8 of Acts, we learned that there was a persecution in the city of Jerusalem, and many of the church leaders were driven out. And Philip was one of those that was driven out. So he was evidently driven out to Caesarea. Along the way, also in chapter 8, we hear about this spectacular kind of event where Philip gets to share his story and really walk this Ethiopian guy through the whole scriptures. So here is Philip minding his own business. This is years later. He's probably the head of the church in Caesarea, and Luke tells us he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So I'm trying to think of some way, Diane, that we can hook uh, Jordan and Dawson up with these guys. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet, now it doesn't say anything about the substance of the prophecy. He just has four unmarried daughters who were prophesying. And then, sometime later, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt off of him. He tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. A barbarian! When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So, there's another prophetic word, and another opportunity to avoid Jerusalem. But Agabus doesn't tell Paul not to go. This is prophecy, by the way, Old Testament style, right? This is like Ahijah in the Old Testament who tore his new cloak to demonstrate how Solomon's kingdom would be torn. Or like Isaiah who went around naked to show how Egypt would be led into captivity by the Assyrians. Or this is like Ezekiel who mimicked the Babylonian siege by laying siege himself to a small replica of the city of Jerusalem. Here, Agabus binds himself and says, in this way, Paul, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem. But Paul, the spiritual barbarian, knows that he's called to Jerusalem. And that's all that matters. That's Paul's preeminent and his first priority. I have a short note this morning to those of us who are parents. 
Shame on us parents who make our children's comfort or their success our first priority for them. Shame on us because we're offering them a life so far short of what they were designed for. Okay, chapter 25, verses 15 through 26, and this is, the story gets good here. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. So now he's gotten to Jerusalem, and it's been years since he was in Jerusalem. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And can you imagine that meeting? So Paul gets together with the church leaders who are still left in Jerusalem, and really in effect, James is almost the de facto leader, perhaps along with Peter, of the entire Christian world. People all over know about James. So Paul, in effect, comes in some humility to present himself to James and the other elders in Jerusalem to tell them about what he's been doing and what God has been doing through them. And then there was this time in Ephesus, it was crazy. We would pray, it got so dramatic, we we would pray for handkerchiefs. And they were taking those handkerchiefs out to people, and people were being healed by the handkerchiefs that we prayed over. Oh my goodness, Paul, tell us more. Well, it got kind of bad at the end. There was this big riot, and the whole city was, you know, they wanted to kill me. And they grabbed a couple of the disciples, and they brought them into the arena, and thankfully, you know, some soldiers came along, arrested, the whole thing stopped. For them, it was just a minor religious dispute. Fortunately, they let us out of town, and, and, you know, and here we are now. Wow, Paul, praise the Lord, that's incredible. Honestly, I still don't think they know exactly what to do with the Apostle Paul's entire ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, look, you see how many thousands of Jews have believed through our ministry? And we're spread all over Judea. You've seen it. And all of them are zealous for the law. So they're following Christ. He's the Messiah. They're in. They're also still subscribing to the law. And by the way, Paul has come to uh, Jerusalem at Passover. So this is an elaborate seven-day highest, holiest time of the year. And many of them would have been in Jerusalem, in the city at this time. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So, what are we going to do about this, Paul? They will certainly hear that you have come. So, listen, do what we tell you. We've prayed about this. We've thought about this. We have a strategy for you, Paul. There are four men among us who've made a vow. And take these men, you, Paul, take these men, join in their purification rites and in the exercise of their vow, and pay the expenses of their vow. Whatever sacrifices are involved, whatever alms are to be given at the temple, you pay that. So it lets everybody know, so all of them can have their heads shaved as part of the vow, and everybody knows that you're all in. You're endorsing still the the highest form of Judaism and, and following of the law. Then everybody will know there's no truth in these reports about you, that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And as for the Gentile believers, well, you, you, know, you know, you remember, we've written to them our decision. They don't have to do all of this. They should simply abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took them in and purified himself. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. 
Okay. I'm going to take off for a second. Preacher hat, Pastor Ed hat. Come over here and offer an opinion. So I want you to take this with about three grains of salt. You are absolutely free to disagree with me. I think this is one of the few times in the story when the Apostle Paul perhaps becomes a little less barbaric. I think that just a small degree, Paul caves. And in fact, it doesn't work. I like the way one of the great commentarians of all time, F.F. Bruce, explains it this way. He said, the wisdom of Paul's complying with the elder's plan may well be doubted. Probably he himself was too sanguine about its outcome, but if his failing in their proposal would relieve them of embarrassment, now he's getting at what he thinks was going on in Paul's mind. He was prepared to bend over backwards and in the application of his own stated policy. So he believes that he's trying to just relieve the embarrassment of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem because you know they're harboring a guy who folks think is out there in Gentile territory telling Jews and Gentiles alike, forget Moses. And then Bruce lists Paul's principle, which is found in 1 Corinthians 9.20. Paul says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So for Paul, it was all about the, the message of Jesus being told. And whatever it takes for the message of Jesus to be told, for me to get an audience, I'll do it. Verses 27 through 36, we find out what happens. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So these are Jews that evidently lived out in perhaps near Ephesus or in one of the other cities where Paul has started to work. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area itself and defiled this holy place. So they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The temple area, by the way, had been remodeled dramatically, almost reconstructed under the reign of Herod, beginning about 30 B.C. and over the next 15 or 20 years. And it had become the largest temple complex in the Roman world. It was very, very well known. And one of the things that Herod had done in his remodeling is he had dramatically expanded and also beautified the Gentile court and the women's court. And we have no idea where Trophimus was, but this is almost definitely a rumor. And certainly there's no truth to the charge that Paul is telling people to disregard Moses. The whole city was aroused, and people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And this is very likely. Most estimates will put the population of Jerusalem at this time in history Somewhere between, and it's hard to get a, a firm fix on it, but somewhere between 20,000 and 80,000 people. That number would have doubled probably during the time of Pentecost, but it would have been a very crowded area. They would have been crowded in and around the city and in and around the temple at certain times during the day and during that week. So it's probably literally the case that this is not a city, for instance, the size of modern-day Washington, D.C., 
It's probably literally the case that the entire city is ground to a halt because of what's happening just outside the temple area. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, fortunately. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So he's now bound by a, to a soldier on either side of himself, hand and feet. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Not surprisingly, some in the crowd shouting one thing, some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him, away with him. So to get out of the mob, they want to bring this guy just to find out what's going on and find out who he is. They bring him into the barracks. I want you to remember that he was warned that this would happen. He knew it. But spiritual barbarians are not deterred by such things. So now, verses 37 through 40. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something? The commander is stunned. Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Clearly, he has no idea who this guy is. He's heard a variety of stories. Why this one was the most likely one, I don't know. Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. The commander is obviously a little undone, doesn't know who this guy is, but okay, if you can calm him down. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd when they were all silent. He began to speak to them in Aramaic, the language of the streets. Now Paul continues to surprise and amaze. I think right here, I think right here, Paul begins to fulfill God's purposes for him and for this whole episode in his life. Right here. I think this is the beginning of why Paul felt the Spirit compel him to go to Jerusalem. Now, I don't, honestly, I don't think this is intentional on Paul's part. In other words, I don't think Paul is saying, oh, oh, I'm going to fulfill my purpose right here. I think this is just Paul being Paul. I think this is Paul being a spiritual barbarian. And if anybody had any common sense, they would say to Paul, don't say anything. Just shut up. You're going to be okay. These guys have got you. You're going to be in the Roman fortress. Just let this thing play out. There are no charges against you. You've seen this before in Ephesus. They're going to think this is just some stupid religious thing, and then we can sneak you out of Jerusalem. Would you please shut up? But the spiritual barbarian cannot. Paul says, can I say a word to the crowd? Brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense. The crowd goes still. He's speaking in Aramaic. Wait, I'm confused. Who, I thought he was the guy. Wasn't he the Egyptian? No, he's the idiot that's been out in Asia Minor telling the Greeks and the Jews out there that they don't have to. Shh, I want to hear him. Well, who is he? I don't know. Let's listen. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Wow. He got a master's from Gamaliel. What? I didn't know that. What? Wait. What? What? Yes. He's a Pharisee. Are you serious? Yeah, shut up. I want to hear what he has. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Wait, I thought he was a father. Shut up. Arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all of the council can testify. They're here. They can tell you. I asked them for papers to go to Damascus and kill Christ followers. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Nobody's saying anything now. He's got them. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. You have an assignment, George. Hannah, you have an assignment. Stephen, you have an assignment. Nathan, you have an assignment. Don't let anything deter you from God's assignment. Jonathan and Allison, don't get domesticated like your parents have gotten domesticated. It is hell trying to be a Christ follower in the suburbs. It is a perfectly composed soup to tame and domesticate us. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. I couldn't see. The light was so bright. A man named Ananias, that's kind of ironic. The chief priest's name is Ananias, but different man. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. He was a devout observer of the law, Jerusalemites. And he was highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight, and you cannot believe this. At that very moment, I was able to see. You could hear a pin drop. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Do you see what he's done? He has called Jesus the Lord. Exactly the language that these Jews would have reserved for Yahweh because they don't use the name Yahweh. It's too familiar. They call him the Lord. And the Apostle Paul has recognized that Jesus is the Lord. 
And now he calls him the righteous one. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw the Lord speaking to me again. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul, don't start doing this! Don't start, don't start telling them where they've gone wrong. Just shut up. You've got them. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I'm going to send you far away from these people to the Gentiles. Now you've done it. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. Why did I let this guy say something? He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Beat him until he tells us why they're shouting like this. Meanwhile, he can't say a word because they're beating him. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? Uh-oh. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, Wait, did you know this guy was a Roman citizen? Wait, what? What are you going to do, he asked. What are you going to (laughs) do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked him, okay, tell me right now, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The centurion, Scripture doesn't say this. I think original text says, blood drained from the centurion's face. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. What about you? Paul says, I was born a citizen. (laughs) Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. What do we do now? The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Chapter 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, Paul, be quiet. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Just think about that one act. That hurts. Then Paul said to him, (laughs) Paul needs an advisor. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said to him, you dare to insult God's high priest. And listen to this. This guy's a stud. I want you to listen to this humility. Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. For it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Oh my gosh. 
And Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, may I say, very cleverly, "Uh, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee. The son of a Pharisee, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, (laughs) a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. They couldn't figure out what to do, because now they're in an argument between themselves. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. He's got them defending him now. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him because you guys are idiots, you don't believe in those kinds of things. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by him. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. The spiritual barbarian is on his way to Rome. I believe Paul had known for years that he would eventually end up in Rome, preaching and teaching the great news about Jesus. I'm going to say that again in case you missed it in the movement. The spiritual barbarian is on his way to Rome. The capital of the whole world And God has found a way to get his spiritual barbarian into the very center of it. And I believe Paul had known for years that he would eventually end up in Rome, preaching and teaching the great news about Jesus. He was in chains. Mobs were threatening his life, and Roman authorities were confused and afraid and didn't know what to do with him. But for Paul, I believe he had a sense of being in the very pocket of God's purposes for him. I believe Paul knew that he was right in the middle of God's assignment. So I guess the question for you and I today is, what is your purpose? Where are you headed? What's your assignment? And then the second question for you and I is, to what degree have you been domesticated? You know, I looked up domestication this week. Dogs were domesticated, they suspect, somewhere around 20,000 B.C., It happened, most sociologists who need a job and discuss these kind of things, even though they have no idea, it happened somewhat accidentally because humans and the gray wolf were after the same prey. And it became convenient and effective for them to hunt together. And little by little, this partnership developed, and the gray wolf began to be domesticated, and it became what is eventually the Labrador Retriever that sits in our den. Well, not in our den, Diane. We've debated getting a dog for 10 years and haven't gotten one. But in your dens. <laughs> one of the keys to domestication, to domesticating an animal, and I thought this was fascinating. One of the keys for an animal, one of the classifications, they know that an animal can be domesticated when it can breed in captivity. So we began to keep them near us and then breed us. So let's think about three things this morning, three different models. I want you to think first about the gray wolf who's out in the wild and he's hunting. His life is sometimes rough, but his life is full of high adventure. Then I want you to think about a middle stage. That middle stage is Jippy. When I was a little boy up until the time I was seven, we had a dog. My mother hated dogs. She especially hated Jippy. 
So Jippy was never allowed in our house. When I say never, I mean not once. That dog would have been dead if it had ever come in our house. We never got dog food. She never took him to the vet. She would have been happy for him to die. So if anything was wrong with Jippy, more power to him. The dog was fed from scraps from our table. You think I'm exaggerating? Not in the least. She would take whatever was left from lunch and dinner for the day, throw it outside on the ground, and Jippy would come from somewhere. We don't know where. Because Jippy spent his time when he wasn't playing with me in the backyard, who knows where, all over our little town. But still, Jippy got fed at the hands, the reluctant, may I say resentful hands, of Clem Allen, who would go out and scrape, <laughs> scrape food for Jippy, Jippy into, the, into the yard. Jippy is what we might call partially domesticated. <laughs> and then we've got your lap dogs, who get walked every day and groomed. You pay people to walk your dogs and groomed, and they get taken to the vet multiple times a year. If they cough up something on your carpet, you clean up the carpet. You don't, like Clem Allen would have done, kick the dog. Instead, you take the dog to the vet, and you spend $1,200 to make sure that the dog is okay. You feed elaborate amounts of food. Sometimes you buy food that's labeled organic. You pay 40% more for it because you think it is better for your lap dog. And every day when you come home, you open the door and <laughs> there they are, greeting you. <laughs> so, for you this morning, are you a gray wolf? Spiritually. Are you a barbarian? Are you wild and free? Are you alive with God's purpose? Are you seeking out and listening for and finding his assignment and pursuing that at all? Nothing else matters. No other voices matters but the assignment of God. Or are you jippy? Partially wild and free and having fun. Once in a while, you venture up to the house and get kicked by Clem Allen, but you get your food. Or... Are you Sally or Luther or whoever your lapdog is? Having all your needs met, not causing any trouble, very, very, very unlike the great world. Let's pray. Father, our lives are in your hands. So that's just the truth. So this morning we do our best to acknowledge it and to embrace it, to relinquish, to release, to let go to you and to, <laughs> Lord, to take up our wolfness. We embrace our barbaric nature this morning. We want to live for you. One clear, holy, high purpose and passion alive, sometimes in danger, but alive, sometimes not even safe, but free. Where we receive it, we receive it for our children. We call it out in ourselves. We ask that you, Lord, would make us a community of barbarians. Help us 
protect us from and help us stand against the friction forces of suburban America. To be, Lord, singly and solely your people. 